Welcome to Crypto and Grill. Guys, welcome back to Crypto and Grill. We've got another awesome guest lined up for you. As if you hadn't had enough of myself, Crypto Dantes, and my boy here, Token Stig, um, or as you know him, Stig of the Pump, um, we've got a special guest today, and um, we're really looking forward to this. Um, I'm going to give him a quick intro. This guy is, uh, he's got a pretty uh, pretty big following in the crypto space. Um, he's uh, anywhere, everywhere. He's coined half of the phrases that you talk about uh, that you don't even know that are, that are his. Um, he used to work for Facebook. He spent some time at Snapchat and he's now partner at Morgan Creek Digital Assets. He, as if that wasn't enough to keep him busy, he also is the host of the second best podcast in the crypto space. Uh, this is a man called Anthony AJ Pompliano. Anthony, say hello. Thank you guys so much for having me. No, thank that you. Sounded like, that sounded like a fighter entering into the ring. Yeah, Anthony <laughs> AJ, ding ding. Um, yeah, so can we, uh, am I okay to call you Pomp today? I don't want to be too familiar, but is that okay? I, uh, or would you prefer AJ? I, I couldn't. I couldn't lose that uh, lose that nickname if I tried at this point. Amazing, great stuff. Good to hear it. So, look, Pomp, thank you very much for coming. Um, I wanted to kick off just with um, a, a bit more detail about your uh, your background, actually, just around what you did at Facebook, Snapchat, and and how you transitioned into becoming partner of Morgan Creek. Um, just mm-hmm. to give, because what we like to do, this is an introductory podcast for people new to the space. We want to try and give people a flavour of what um, what kind of backgrounds people had. Were they all financial uh, analysts, or were they all traders, or did they just come from a completely different background, switch into crypto, go down the rabbit hole, and um, and get hooked by it, and take it from there so I was going to kick off with that but there's one question I need to ask you before uh, we do that and this is something mm-hmm. that we ask all of our guests um, we're going to ask every single person that we interview until we find an answer AJ or Pomp are you Satoshi Nakamoto <laughs> I am not damn it okay that's <laughs> too the search long. continues the search continues that's two guests down that's uh, we're, we're gonna get closer uh so look yeah over to you if you give us a quick intro about um yourself your background how you ended up at morgan creek um, that would be a really nice start yeah look uh spent six and a half years in the u.s army was running um uh or, or deployed overseas as a, a sergeant in u.s infantry um came back did uh built two Tech startups, uh, sold the first one in 2012, second one in 2013, uh, then went and ran a number of product and growth teams at Facebook and Snapchat, uh, started an early stage venture fund of a partner, Jason Williams, um, and then uh, earlier this year, we, uh, we sold Full Tilt to uh, Morgan Creek uh, Capital, a multi-billion dollar asset manager based in the U.S., and, uh, and we are now building out um, quite a large uh, asset management firm uh, for the digital age. 
Amazing. And how does one go about starting an early stage venture fund? Did you have, um, is it through the sales of the businesses that you had previously, you had, it was self-funded or did you uh, just have a pretty broad network? Um, you created some concepts and went and did a sort of fundraising round for yourselves and, and took it from yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, look, we, uh, um, actually a lot of people don't know the story, but, uh, the, the, uh, first thing we did, um, we wrote a, uh, a, a piece on medium and we said, look, we're launching a venture fund. And uh, we had zero dollars in the bank. We had zero deals, um, but but we kind of put the flag in the ground and said we're going to do this. And uh, you know, all of a sudden started looking at a couple of deals. Uh, started talking to uh, some investors, put some of our own capital in, um, and you kind of just you know wake up every day and, and move the ball forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in about eighteen months, we invested in. Uh, um, over 60 companies. Uh, we did four late stage SPVs um, and, uh, and kind of built a nice little business for ourselves. And do you focus on a specific sector then or a specific set of technologies or are you pretty agnostic? So uh, the strategy at Full Tilt, uh, we were completely agnostic to industry, uh, mm-hmm. location, etc. We were um, fanatically focused on uh, the individuals. Right. And so uh, if you think of a, a, a really early stage company, uh, the only things that matter are, um, are, are the people. Everything else is going to change. The product they want to build, the market they're going after, you know, competition, uh, their business model, all, all of that stuff is going to change over time. But the people who are leading the organization uh, are, are the least likely to change. And so as long as you back the right people, you know, you have to have faith that they will figure out everything else. And so that was our, uh, that was our focus. And, uh, um, you know, thankfully a number of, uh, really, really strong founders, uh, were, uh, were, were kind enough to allow us to partner with them, um, and, and kind of be a part of, uh, of their journey as they built their companies and, and they're doing a pretty impressive job. That's awesome. Excellent. I'm literally down, I'm downloading the article now, redacting it to put our names on top and, uh, going to do something in the UK. If you, if you could just put at the bottom, please, uh, my family, um, that might work. That'll, that'll work better. Um, awesome. So, um, so then how did you transition then into, um, into Bitcoin, crypto, digital assets? What, what was the sort of spark, the thing that got you interested and hooked? Yeah. So look, we, we, um, we were talking to a lot of founders before they even started the companies, right? Sometimes we were even talking to people who still had jobs and they were thinking about a company. And so we got to understand um, what they were excited about, what they thought they were going to go build. Um, and, and in those situations, what we would do is uh, kind of go start looking at the industries people were excited going into. So blockchain was one of them. We saw more people, you know, hey, I might build a blockchain company. So we started looking at it. Uh, we started to see more capital flow into um, the blockchain space. And then uh, we funded a couple of companies and in two specific cases. Uh, an early employee left to go join a blockchain startup. Right. So it just became obvious, hey, look, there's a, ta- a talent flight into this industry. There's capital flowing into this industry. Um, you know, a piece of advice I got early in my investing career was just follow the talent. Right. And mm-hmm. so um, started to do that. And uh, what we realized was um, we didn't understand the ICOs. Right. That this idea that we were going to give money to a founder, they were going to give us a token. And the token wasn't equity. It wasn't debt. It wasn't a claim on cash flow. Great deal for the founder. But yeah. what we couldn't wrap our head around was as fiduciaries investing other people's money, it wasn't a great investment opportunity, right, in terms of downside risk protection. If you want to speculate, right, 
great investment, but but really we you know kind of sold our investors on it's uh, something we believe in around risk mitigation and risk management, um, and, and so um, you know went ahead and did that right and. and uh, and so we said, look, we're not going to invest in any ICOs. Obviously, you've got this large online following. People are uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're questioning that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but what we did say is, look, there's a way to invest capital in the space um, without taking the the risk of those single digital assets in an ICO uh, yeah. type environment, right? Yeah. And uh, and what we found was um, the best way to do that initially was through mining. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jason and I um, started building mining facilities. Uh, we built a number of them, um, and, and what we liked about it was we were taking the same risk as a traditional data center, right? In terms of their space, their power, you put hardware, you rent the hardware out for for cash flow, uh, but it was a lower initial capital outlay, and also it was a higher yielding product. So same risk profile, less capital outlay uh, on the infrastructure side, and then a higher yielding product. And so we came up with this framework for taking traditional investment strategies, you know, infrastructure being one, applying it to crypto and creating a higher yielding product with the same or lower risk profile. And so that was kind of our aha um, that really kind of pushed us into into the space on a more full-time basis. And we have turned back since. it really, really interesting that that was your entry point because I think on one of the other podcasts that I listened to, you talked about how always the smart move and always uh, the smart move from an investment perspective and an ability to manage your risk is to get into the infrastructure plays. So, and I know you talk, and so I think you referenced the gold rush and actually the gold rush was highly speculative and hard to pick the winners much like a lot of things that we see at the moment in the crypto space. But the things that are really exciting and interesting that have a far lower risk profile are the infrastructure plays, like mining, uh, like exchanges, like interoperability plays. So what are what are the things that you're most excited now about from an infrastructure perspective that's kind of beyond the mining set? Yeah, look, I think that there's a couple of different uh, areas. So the way we think about infrastructure is um, businesses that benefit from the overall industry growing. So, um, you know, you don't have to be the best in breed, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And you don't have to be the largest, but you're still going to make money because you are positioned in a way that benefits from industry growth. And so this is um, examples like uh, exchanges, wallets, uh, hardware manufacturing manufacturers, chip uh, manufacturers, um, you know, mining facilities, uh, data providers, uh, developer tools. Um, you know, I, I was joking with somebody the other day, like KPMG, right, could be seen as a infrastructure service. Everyone mm-hmm. has to pay their taxes, right? Huh. And, and so yeah. as long as there's more companies in the crypto space, then more people have to pay taxes and therefore KPMG's crypto business should continue to grow. Right. And, and and so that's the type of stuff I think that, um, you know, we, we really look for today yeah, over yeah. time that that kind of strategy may evolve. But but that's where we are today. So, yeah. So don't don't chase the gold. sell the shovels is uh, I think that's uh, some yeah. of the phrase. Um, yeah. I, I mean, look, my, my partner, uh, Mark Yusko, he he, uh, he he went back and he researched this gold rush. Right. And, uh, and so there's a, a gentleman um, who found the first gold. In, uh, in Sutter's Hill in, in California. And uh, he actually did not get rich because somebody came and stole the gold, <laughs> right? But th- there's another guy, um, Sam Brandon, I think is his name. He was the first California millionaire. And he owned a general store 
uh, in that area. And he basically uh, took um, all the pots, pans, shovels, uh, picks, uh, etc., and he sold it to all of these people who were speculating on finding gold. And so whether somebody found gold or not, Sam made money because people bought the picks, shovels, the you know pots, pans, etc. And so um, I think the numbers, if I remember correctly, are like he was making one hundred fifty thousand dollars a day in revenue in today's dollars. Wow. Okay. Right. And so he ended up being you know California's first millionaire. And so there's plenty of people who got rich you know mining for gold, but for every mm. one person that got rich, there's plenty mm. of people who didn't. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, and so obviously, um, you know, selling the picks and the shovels is uh, is a kind of tried and true method there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in a seamless transition from gold to uh, the future <laughs> of uh, gold um, and as a, a potential replacement for gold, um, just to hone in on Bitcoin a little bit more. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's very easy for people that are new to the space to be put off um, by some of the things that you read in the media. I'm going to read a few things out. Bitcoin's a bubble. Bitcoin wastes electricity. Bitcoin isn't backed by anything. So it's a really sort of basic things that people haven't researched, but it's easy to say them. And if you don't know the space and you're kind of new to it and you think there's something there, you, it's quite hard to rebut these, um, to, have, to give a rebuttal to these to these questions or these statements. So I was wondering what your views on, on sort of responses to those things are from a frame of reference of Bitcoin as a, a technology and a tool of financial freedom. Uh, Bitcoin is a form of hard and sound money and Bitcoin maybe in the future as a potential currency, a global reserve currency, or even just uh, sort of continuing what it's doing today and just being a uh, effective form of wealth transfer or um, for payments. What are your views, takes in that kind of space? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it is, uh, I, I would argue, um, that a bubble, right, that the idea of a bubble is unsustainable, right? So, so the, the unsustainability of a market creates a bubble. So there, there's kind of a hype cycle, and, and then you get the, the, the deflating of, of that hype. Um, you know, my argument here, I think, is that uh, the people who are saying Bitcoin is a bubble are speaking to the speculative nature of retail investing, right? Mm-hmm. And so that the price can be a bubble, but the underlying asset is not. And so the, the interesting thing of that is the inverse is true of fiat currency. Yeah. So the price of Bitcoin is speculated on and we see it rise and fall and rise and fall. It's happened multiple times, kind of these market cycles, right? But it continues to appreciate over a long period of time because it's a deflationary asset, right? The fiat currency has $1.00 as the price, right? The $1 does not move, but the underlying asset, right? Or, or the, the, the value of the dollar, not the price, but the value continues to decrease, right? Because it's an inflationary asset. So here's the scary part is that the people who are calling Bitcoin a bubble usually do not understand the nuances of fiat currency. And the fiat currency is actually the thing that we should fear because what's happening is every year the rich and, and the people who print money are stealing from the poor, right? They, they are, they're stealing purchasing power and they're inflating the price of assets. But the people who are doing this and making these decisions, they own the most assets. So they're actually benefiting themselves and, and they're stealing from those who are less wealthy. And so what it ends up occurring here is the only way that the fiat system continues to 
um, persist or, or, or remain uh, sustainable is that those who make the monetary decisions have discipline, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. that's what prevents kind of the, the overprinting of money and all this stuff. Well, look around the world and see where countries have lost discipline. It's where a single person or group gains control and then they break discipline because it benefits themselves. They overprint money, right? It drives the value of their assets up. It steals from the poor. And when you begin to do that, at some point it tips and the currency enters hyperinflation. And when you enter into hyperinflation, it's this downward spiral of devaluation of the currency that can't be stopped. And so if you look around the world, Venezuela, Iran, Turkey, Zimbabwe, et cetera, the fiat experiment, that list Argentina. is growing every day. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the list of where this is happening is growing every day. And, and what we're seeing is, is it's all driven by people who have unilateral control or make unilateral decisions. Correct. And, it's, and the thing that I think people really underestimate is that it's only going to get worse. Globally, it is only going to get worse. These are countries that have uh, these authorities at the moment that drive this kind of uh, market cycle and into hyperinflation. But that, that's just going to become greater and greater and greater. And that coupled with a global financial crisis, which everyone keeps on talking about that we're heading towards, it, it's going to be fascinating to see what the impact is and what the transition is from inflationary fiat to deflationary Bitcoin or deflationary X currency, whichever you want to use. Um, I think it's just going to be a fascinating space for two or three years. Absolutely. I mean, look, and and here's the here's the best part about the whole thing is what we are seeing with the adoption of Bitcoin is people moving their trust from humans to machines. And when that occurs, what we realize is that humans are not subject to emotion or I'm sorry, uh, machines are not subject to emotion, bias or greed. And so the discipline is written into code mm-hmm. and it completely changes the dynamics of money. And I think that we're starting to see it accelerate and it's only going to go faster as and, you know more and more economic crisis hit. And that for the poorer and the unbanked billions of people in the world is just going to be game changing where you remove the ability for an individual who has emotion to define their destiny and give them the tools and the infrastructure in order to play in a way that they would have never been able to before. It's, Absolutely. It's, yeah. Unless the machines take agree. over. Unless the machines figure it out, take over, and... Uh, you, they... always ha- you always have to ruin it, don't you? <laughs> I listen, <laughs> hey, I listened to Elon Musk the other day. That one scared look, me. So, um, you know... We, 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 <laughs> I, I, I tweeted last night. I said, look, you know, we are... Uh, the machines are already our masters, yeah. right? If you think about everything from digital addiction to our reliance on these machines to live our lives, we're already uh, kind of given up sovereignty to them to some degree right and and so um i ask people you know could you go through your day without using a machine unlikely and so now that the machines are getting smarter all it's doing is they're more deeply embedded into our lives which increases our reliance on them and and so we're, we're we're slowly allowing this to happen now i actually would argue that's okay right the, the, the fact that we are augmenting human intelligence and human life with machines is actually a good thing. 
Look at what things, yeah. yeah look, look at what things like the combustion engine created, right? That this is kind of it drives economic activity, it drives innovation, it improves the lives of the human race. But at the same time, we need to be aware that it's happening, right? And so I think that you know we're, we're entering this phase where a lot of people probably don't have their eyes open about you know how much better machines are at certain things, um, especially around you know machine learning and artificial intelligence and. and Bitcoin is one of the first, um, you know, applications where software is actually gaining trust over humans on a macroeconomic level. And so, you know, there are probably others that will follow. Um, Bitcoin could be money. Bitcoin could be store of value. But, but I think that this is a really interesting time to be paying attention to this stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating, and, and you're seeing sort of uh, it, the world really sat up and took notice last year of Bitcoin. You know, when it when it peaked over 10k and then rocketed to 20k, uh, you know, everybody woke up, and a lot of people got ruined because they they sort of bought the top. But I think um, for those that um, bought and um, took note and and went down the rabbit hole and started researching. All the things that you've just started uh, talking about and introducing as topics became um, evident, and you know I think that's the the journey that myself and Stig have been on here. You know we've seen um, the the role of uh, fiat currencies, the importance of Bitcoin, and where the next 10, 15, 20 years could could lead us. Um, and yeah, we're fully signed up, and, and we think Bitcoin is the first step to that. And I think adoption and that growth of Bitcoin and it becoming a real uh, fundamental asset class um, on its own right and something that has, has got broad mainstream adoption is going to be probably the next step. Um, so we were wondering about um, maybe moving the conversation on slightly to, to what you think the, the stages are or what the how we get that broad um, mainstream adoption. Is it an ETF? And we've seen some news about that um, in the last 24 hours. Um, is that going to be step one, or is it something else that uh, that kicks us along the way? A global economic recession, for example. Yeah. Look, I, I think that um, there's a uh, there's a difference between um, access to an asset class for uh, I- investment or um, speculation, right? Trading. And so I think the ETF can empower that for a subset of people, right? So, you know, there's some portion of people who uh, have already gotten into the asset class uh, through a whole number of channels that are available. But there's another group of people who who, uh, don't want to jump through all those hoops in order to buy the asset. And so they're used to buying kind of public equities. And an ETF is a great way for them to, um, you know, kind of gain access. And so that will kind of provide, you know, some relief for people who have demand, but, but they can't yet. Um, do it. And so so I think that's an important step to the maturation um, of of the market. And, and, you know, it drives adoption um, in in some regard. I think that the the more important thing is um, not necessarily the people who want to trade this, but it's people who are adopting it as uh, their choice of currency, right? Or, Or their choice of value. And so when that begins to happen, what you find is that on a global scale, when everyone adopts a certain asset as a global currency, a global store of value, um, what, what, what will, will occur is something we've never seen before because we've never had an asset class introduced to a global population that is so hyper-connected like the one we have today, right? And, and so the, this, this idea of you know, an ETF on a U.S.-based exchange being a huge deal – it's just it's such a small blip on the on the kind of long term 
um, chart of adoption because it's not really going to move the needle when you look at the 7 billion people in the world who potentially could adopt this as, you know, maybe not the store of value, but a store of value, or not as the medium of exchange, but a medium of exchange, right? I think a lot of people forget, you know, there's multiple currencies that coexist today just fine. And, and I don't think that Bitcoin has to kill all the other currencies, right. And kind of be the one and the only, but I, I do think that what we're seeing is the creation of a, a, a store of value or medium of exchange that uh, at a minimum will coexist with yeah. fiat and potentially could become the dominant version. Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it is the dominant, um, you know, kind of value or, or, or exchange, uh, medium of exchange, it uh, doesn't mean that the rest have to go away. They just may not be as important. Yeah. Right. I know. I know. This is the the space will progress because different ones will be different things to different people. And so you look at Bitcoin and the way that it stores value, but it's relatively poor at transactions. I say relatively. Uh, you look at some of the stuff that the guys at Basis are doing with their stablecoin. There's some really, really interesting developments in this space, and I I couldn't agree more. I think there will be a combination of different currencies in the future, which will all align and do different things to different people. But so if it's, so what do you think are then the big steps or the big pivotal points that could take us down that journey of adoption? Because when I, I still talk to some of my more learned friends and they still think I'm absolutely batshit crazy when talking about crypto and Bitcoin and everything else. Um, And they just all think it's a bit of a, a bit of a scam. So what do you think those big routes to, or big markers to adoption are going to be? Yeah, I, th- I think that there are probably um, three likely scenarios, right? So one is we'll see on a uh, kind of uh, in the developing world specifically, we'll see kind of a small scale economic crisis drive adoption on a local level. So, you know, Venezuela obviously is kind of what everyone talks about. Uh, November 2016 uh, is when the Venezuela and Bolivia are entered into, uh, by definition, hyperinflation, right? So, so by definition, that's when it entered into the hyperinflation um, zone. And, and uh, at that time, on the local Bitcoins exchange, um, it was about $200,000, $215,000 worth of monthly volume. Fast forward to uh, September 2018, and now monthly volume is over 3 million, right? And so what you have is you've got a country of 30 million people, give or take, that has seen a 1,200% rise in less than two years in the monthly volume of this digital asset. And so I think that you know we'll continue to see that in these smaller countries um, for years to come as kind of the fiat experiment continues to, um, you know, fail to some degree. Now, on top of that, I think that there is uh, likely to be a driver around a more macroeconomic, um, you know, crisis, uh, whether that is a recession, a depression, um, et cetera, where again, Bitcoin is a hedge against humans, and Bitcoin is a hedge against uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> this idea that, that Bitcoin is actually more transparent than the Federal Reserve, huh. right? And so if you think about this, what you see is I know exactly how the Bitcoin system is designed. Why? It's open source software, right? And then I actually can go back and audit every single transaction that has 
ever occurred with Bitcoin, right? And then I know what's happening right now because I can go and I can look. And I know what is supposed to happen in the future, right? We do not have that information for the Federal Reserve. And so that's not just the U.S. I mean, that's, that's every central bank around the world, right? And again, that's not necessarily good or bad. It's just the facts of each system. Now, what becomes more interesting is do humans, because of their hyperconnectivity, their access to information, become much more sensitive when they do not have transparency into systems? If so, Bitcoin or other types of digital assets will become superior in the eyes of the users because they have that transparency. And, and a huge kind of uh, uh, something that could happen that could highlight this is around economic uncertainty, right? So, so kind of, uh, you know, recession, depression, all that kind of stuff. When people are sitting there and saying, oh, what, what are, you know, regulators going to do or what are kind of economists and, and the central bank, what are they going to do? Well, if there's a system where there is no uncertainty, then I think that, you know, you start to get into this question of why do I not just go participate in that system? Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's going to be a really interesting time when, when the next uh, kind of economic downturn occurs. Yeah. And, I, and also, when, for me, it's when that, when that infrastructure becomes so prevalent. So as an example, I'm trying to set up an entity for my company to do some offshore digital development. And I'm genuinely considering why I would go through a normal banking infrastructure to pay that entity from the UK, why I would not just have, hold assets, hold Bitcoin on my books and use that to pay my entity and the employees that I have in that entity uh, the other side of the world, because I can do it instantaneously, transparent, uh, transparently. And the only issue now is the volatility, which will hopefully steady and go away over time. Absolutely. I, I think that that's dead on. Sounds like a good idea from uh, endorsed by Pomp there. Well done, Stig. Um, <laughs> I'm going to stick that on my de- next deck. <laughs> um, so one thing that I just wanted to slightly move on to, Did you had you finished there, Pomp, or was there, was there one more that you wanted to cover? No, that's good. Um, so the, the one thing that I wanted to just um, touch on is something that you discussed with Caitlin Long, um, and it's something that not many people have um, awareness about. Um, you know, Bitcoin has got a finite supply of 21 million. 21 million is the maximum that can only ever exist. It's becoming more mainstream. We're seeing this exchange-traded fund being talked about, and you know it's interesting to hear that you think that that's just a drop in the ocean, which is which is I guess great um, in in light of what I'm about to say next. Because what concerns me is those things that Caitlin Long talk talks about regarding the rehypothecation of assets, which is effectively the um, the equivalent of just inflating the Bitcoin supply and um, over the 21 million and making people believe that they're buying Bitcoin when they're investing in it. Uh, via some fund or some um, some tracker on on Wall Street, and actually they're not buying real bitcoins. And I think there was a case with Del Monte Foods uh, that brought this to light, where there was uh, something like 40 million shareholders um, of uh, of Del Monte and only 40, uh, only 30 million shares uh, out in the marketplace. So, is there a is there anything that we can do to, I guess we, is there anything that the world or uh, regulators can do to stop um, all of those amazing characteristics that exist for Bitcoin, uh, that finite supply, uh, being ruined and by, by sort of Wall Street? Um, is there any, any, any counter mechanism to that? Oh, I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that people can do, right? So, you know, people can't kill 
Bitcoin itself because of the decentralized nature. But, you know, one thing that would uh, be, a, be a huge detriment to the adoption would be if a, a large country uh, outlawed ownership. Right. They just said, look, it's illegal for you to own this asset. Well, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that there's kind of, you know, really drastic regulatory type stuff um, or, or, or legal type enforcement that can occur. Um, I, I think that's unlikely, but, but, but definitely possible. Uh, I think that um, there is uh, a, a lot of financial engineering that is likely to be tried. Right. And, and occur. Um, this is things like the rehypothecation and all of that. Um, which obviously would not be uh, would not be ideal, um, but but again, I, I think that you know humans are human and they're going to do this stuff, and, and so what really comes down to uh, is that doesn't take away the underlying value of the asset, yeah. right? Um, and, and so, do you want to be the person who actually owns the asset and has the private keys of? one or many of the 21 million that are available or do you want to be the person who holds a derivative of that asset and you may or may not actually have a claim on a bitcoin in your mind that also a, a few other people think that they have a claim to as well i probably want to be the person who actually has the private keys yeah right yeah. And, and, and so i think that's the you know it's almost like you could see, hey, this is the housing bubble playbook all over again, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Kind of, you know, we're, we're just really far away from it occurring, but, but, but it's possible, right? And so I think that, you know, this is part of economic cycles. This is part of human nature. Um, and, and so, again, it comes down to managing risk, staying disciplined, um, not chasing kind of the new shiny thing. And, and those with the longest time horizons and the most discipline um, are, are likely to, uh, you know, kind of have history be kind to them. Yeah. And this is one thing that we, we say in every episode is if you don't own the private keys, you don't own the coins. Um, so, you know, yeah. make sure you do uh, you do that and take care of them as well. Keep them safe. Um, awesome. So one thing that I wanted to just move on to, because uh, we are rapidly um, running out of time here. So uh, one thing I wanted to quick. <laughs> um, was um, your this notion that you've talked about um, quite a lot, and I think you're you're trying to get away from it at the moment. But tokenizing the world, um, it's uh, it's a great uh, great sort of uh, turn of phrase. But I think um, you know what it uh, what it means to to us and I guess to our listeners mm -hmm. is it's that concept of okay, let's put everything on not necessarily on the on the blockchain, but let's digitize everything. There's so many paper-based share certificates and so many inefficient systems that for the first time we have an opportunity in front of us right now where the technology exists that perhaps it hasn't before in a decentralized way and that we can record all of this information safely, securely and uh, and digitally. Um, the yeah the notion of tokenize the world where did that sort of emerge from and is it something that you're still pursuing and that you think is um is going to ha start happening over the next few years yeah look the the beauty of having a large online audience is that when you say things a couple of times it resonates people steer it into their brain and you don't have to keep saying it right <laughs> and, 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 and so uh the uh the, it's the idea of, you know yeah the idea of tokenizing the world right the virus is spreading all this i mean like the, these ideas i think people now they know it they, they understand you know what i mean by it and, and so we can kind of move on to other things um or other kind of you know ideas and frameworks etc but but doesn't mean that we abandon the belief in you know tokenizing the world or the virus spreading etc now tokenize the world is uh exactly what you described 
blockchain is merely an assault on paper. That's all that's going on, right? Is this idea that paper is going to go away. And if we do not have paper, we have to trust in something else, right? And so software and math is what happens to replace paper. And blockchain is a great way to um, kind of uh, transfer or, or, or empower trust the same way that we do with paper, right? So paper contracts, all this stuff. And so what we're seeing with assets is that when you can use software and math as the trusted representation of ownership, then you don't need that paper. And so tokenize the world is just every asset, stock, bond, currency, and commodity is going to get digitized or tokenized, right? Now, I, I always joke with people when I say tokenize the world sounds a lot sexier than digitize the world. <laughs> and, so, and so that was kind of the thought process there. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think that general idea is something that we, you know, we believe in, we're, we're actively investing um, against as a thesis. And, and, uh, and it's something that, you know, we just don't need to say it as much anymore because I think people kind of, all right, got it. Yep. I agree. Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of brings us towards the end of uh, of some of our questions. Uh, the one thing that, uh, as we were talking, actually, I got a uh, I got a, a message on Telegram from Stig here, who said it looks like you've been working out, Pomp. So, uh, when you're working out, what kind of protein are you eating, and uh, are you gr- are you are you, <laughs> are you grilling that? That was the weirdest entrance I've ever heard to this section. That was a great say. It wasn't even scripted. I just made that up now. Um, so You're this is crypto and grill pump. Um, go on, tell us. You, you're, you need to survive a bear market. You need to you need to get those uh, those those guns um, pumped. What are you eating t- to do that? Yeah, well, well, I answer the question of what do I like to grill. Um, I, I think <laughs> that uh, anyone who's ever uh, who's ever used to grill and doesn't like uh, ribs is. Uh, is uh, is violating some rule somewhere. So so a nice uh, nice slab of ribs on the grill is always uh, um, you know one of my go tos. Strong. We had uh, we had uh, one of our guests at beer can chicken recently, and I had no idea what that was. Apparently, you just put some a beer can inside a chicken and put it on the barbecue. But there we go. That's you learn something yeah. new every day. Um, so just before we uh, just before we wrap up here, I just wanted to get your view on uh, on long term. Um, you know, what are your future thoughts on how this space is going to pan out? We've got you know, we've got people like Tim Draper saying crypto as an asset class is going to hit 80 trillion uh, and Bitcoin's going to be worth 250k. Uh, Tom Lee uh, from Fundstrat has said you know they see potentially Bitcoin eventually possibly hitting 10 million dollars um i don't i don't think they put a time frame on that but you know what do you there's some massive predictions around here uh what are your thoughts on how it's all going to pan out yeah look the uh i, I tend to think um people are likely to uh overestimate the speed at which we recover from the bear market so, so I, I could see us kind of staying in a bear market for longer than people are anticipating, um, even into kind of mid next year, um, you know, kind of early Q3. Uh, and then, um, look, it, there, there's a Bill Gates quote that I absolutely love. And he says, you know, everyone estimates, uh, uh, everyone overestimates what we can accomplish in two years and underestimates what can be accomplished in 10. Right. And I think that that might be applicable here in terms of, what can happen if this works? It is probably one of the greatest trades of our generation. Yeah. 
right? Because because the, the the phrase that I've been using lately is uh, long Bitcoin, short bankers, <laughs> and, and it's this idea of if humans give trust to the machines over other humans when it comes to the monetary system, it will be so big that it will dwarf any other currency we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, I think that's the exciting part for a lot of people in you know, venture capital and, and that, that do this for a living is there is a bet that exists. And if you are right, it could be bigger than the money supply of the world today. Yeah. That's a great binary bet, right? Yeah. Yeah. It either goes to zero or that's the upside, right? Yeah. Yeah. And anywhere in between. And so I think that's the stuff that, um, you know, I, I tend to spend time thinking about is, you know, if you said to me, you know, in three years, six months, in two days, what's the price of Bitcoin going to be? I don't know. And, and frankly, I don't know if it matters, right? Yeah. But if you look out, you know, two, three decades versus kind of short term, it, it's a pretty exciting time to be, you know, kind of involved in this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're happy to, uh, to just be a small part of it. I th- my, la- my last reflection on that point is with global debt in the position that it's in and the fact that it's ever increasing and nothing's been able to curtail it, something at some point is going to give unless we as a, as an ecosystem live with a negative balance for the duration of time, which I just don't foresee happening. Um, I really, really believe that in something digital of this nature, it, we could balance the books probably for the first time. Maybe. Absolutely. I hope. I mean, that would be incredible. Yeah. And uh, there's, 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 there's amazing things out there as well. Future predictions. Um, there's a lot of uh, people now starting to write about um, uh, where humanity can go. You, you listen, uh, I mentioned previously the, the Elon Musk um, podcast from uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's talking about downloading your, your brain uh, and, and putting it into a computer uh, and all these other things. So, you know, all of that's only going to be spurred by um, by the crypto space, by blockchains, by tokenizing everything, by digitizing everything. Um, there's a great film out re- recently, Ready Player One, uh, that I quite like, that I think actually behind it all is just a blockchain film uh, without realizing <laughs> it. But um, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's a fascinating space. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it's going to unfold over the next few years. So, Pomp, that wraps us up for today. Thank you very much for your time. We uh, we really appreciate it. And um, yeah, best of luck with all your endeavors. Uh, for anyone listening, if you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs> Thanks, guys.